Yeah, I mean, this is some, sometimes if the culture's worse, if it was to come out, it wouldn't just be putting me and her at risk. It would also be like, you know, her sister would become divorced and like her father would lose their job and like there would be huge ramifications that I can't even conceive of. But you have to be really mindful about it and what you're doing. Welcome to Normalizing Non-Monogamy, the podcast where we interview incredible people from across the entire spectrum of non-monogamy to hear their fascinating stories. We strive to bring guests on the show who have a healthy approach to non-monogamy. However, it's important to remember that everyone does it a little bit differently, and the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Additionally, we produce this show for entertainment purposes only. Please be aware that we aren't doctors or therapists. Consult a medical professional for anything regarding your health that you might learn about on the show. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 66. We're Finn and Emma. How about them dope jams? I know, it was some pretty fresh, dope. Some fresh beats. <laughs> we, as you may have noticed, have new music this week. And it was sent actually to us from a listener uh, from episode 54. Shout it out to wasn't Mike. wasn't a listener. He was the person I'm we sorry, interviewed. Interview. Why do I have my headphones? I don't know. It's bugging me, though. (laughs) I can't concentrate because you have your headphones in. I have no idea why I'm not even listening to anything. I know. So anyway, thank you to Mike for sending that in. It was awesome. And we also just wanted to say that if you were also thinking about sending us music, you're still welcome to do so. We aren't. Uh, monogamous in the music department we're we're looking to mix it up a little yeah no we're just looking to try out some new jams i guess and beats they're beats beats okay beats and see what sticks i guess so if you have an idea definitely reach out let us know today this interview is with claire yep claire is fascinating yeah she reached out to us Via the email, which you can do as well via the website. Yes. Normalizingnonmonogamy.com. Okay. <laughs> Claire is a professional humanitarian aid worker who specializes in, specializes, it's a tough one, who specializes in emergency response to natural disasters. She spends most of her time when she's not in England, in sub-Saharan or Eastern Africa, learning and exploring new languages and multiple polyamorous relationships. Yeah, she's also an academic author and speaker and focuses on the intersections between ethics and aid. She's, we did not read any of this well, from her blurb that she sent us. I was going to say, she did send us a blurb, but it... We she, injected our own flair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she is awesome. And we were super impressed by her ability to navigate a polyamorous relationship style while also traveling so much and learning all of these new languages. I, I also just want to say all the people who say communicating in a polyamorous relationship is so difficult. I'm not mocking you, but I'm just saying she does it in languages that you didn't even know existed until you listened to this. Yep. So no more calling the wambulance. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. So anyway, enough of that. Thank you to her. We're excited to share the interview in a hot second. Before we do, we have a couple of trips to take. Where are we going, Emma? What did we this, win today? This coming weekend, we're going to Atlanta Poly Weekend in June 7th and 9th, and we're super excited about that. We've been talking about it for a while now. And Mainly excited because there's a pool party with pizza. Yes, that's true. And we have free giveaways. Yeah, we got tons of condoms from One Condoms. We'll talk about them in a hot second. I yeah. said hot second twice in this. I got to mix it up. <laughs> you do got to mix it up. <laughs> but one of the actual other, one of the other people that will be there this weekend reached out to us. Yeah, they're a speaker and they actually came on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we well, interviewed them last week. We interviewed them last week and they had some time specific information that we needed to share with everybody. So stick around to the end of this one and we put that information there for you from them. Yes. And their name is Co-Creation. Just in case you're curious, check them out. Now, we're also heading west on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> That's true. Are, you, are we going to really take the I'm actual just, Oregon I'm Trail hoping, there? I'm hoping we don't have to ford any rivers or <laughs> die of dysentery. Let's hope not. Let's our, hope I not. hope our ox doesn't die. Anyway, anyway, tell them why we're going out on the Oregon Trail. I... 
from June 25th to July 1st, we will be in Portland, Oregon, and we will be attending the World Domination Summit, which we're super excited about. It is not non-monogamy related. However, it is a super badass conference, and if you're interested in going or just in the area, we wanted to let everyone know that we will be there. Yeah, a quick a quick reading from their website, one sentence, bear with me says, as adventurers from all walks of life, our mission is to create a remarkable community that helps each person pursue their own dreams. Yes. So we're going to pursue our own dreams. Exactly. It's a series of meetups and networking and talks and just lots of awesome goodness. Yeah, the, the conference, for anybody who's never heard of it, was organized originally about nine years ago by a gentleman named Chris Gillibo. He's an Arthur, an Arthur. <laughs> He's actually a Chris, not an Arthur. Yeah. He's an author of books such as The Art of Nonconformity, The Happiness of Pursuit, Born for This, and a few others. He's traveled to every country on the planet. So he's he's a pretty amazing guy himself. Put together this amazing group of people. So if you happen to be in the area, let us know. Yeah. We will be there all week. We can't wait. We have exciting conferences this month. Yep. June is the month of conferences. Okay. One other thing that happened. At the end of our interview with Claire, she was like, blah, blah, blah. Here's some stuff. And then it happened to be some really cool information about one condoms. Yeah. Which, if you want to get 10% off, you can use the offer code Emma at checkout to get 10% off both my one and one condoms. But But first, listen to this. Yeah, she, uh, well, what happened, Claire? I I heard about one condoms from you guys, and I mentioned to my partner, they checked it out. He is... You said, hung. Yeah, you said you said fucking hung. That's what you said. <laughs> He's fucking hung, and he like has had issues busting through condoms like that were normal before, like the standard box, like standard store bought condoms. So I moved on to one condoms, and like no broken rubbers, and no pregnancies, and no scares, and just just happy, protected sex. So thank you. Yay! <laughs> hey, and hopefully a lot more comfortable. <laughs> Yes, I can imagine, especially, like, now everything fits. (laughs) Perfect. And so just really quick to follow up on what Claire said, uh, you don't have to be fucking hung to use my one condom. (laughs) True. But they do work everywhere from not very fucking hung to very fucking hung. Yeah. So There's, like, over 60 sizes. They're actually, I looked it up since the last time we did this. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't sure. There is exactly 60. Okay. So we were both wrong the first time we recorded this. I thought 66. Finn thought 62. So anyway, there's 60 different sizes, and uh, we're actually getting some really cool 3D models of some of the different sizes sent to us. So we'll be able to post some pictures and and have an actual model of, like, why would you ever need different condoms? The ones at the store fit me just fine. We'll have more information on that later. Let's go to an oh, no. You can find the links to my one or one condoms on our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com or nnmpodcast.com under the resources page. You can also contact us there. We love to hear from any of you. Leave us a voicemail or write us an email, please. Thanks. That's it. Now on to Claire. Welcome, Claire, to normalizing non-monogamy. We've been trying to make this one happen for a little while as well, as always, because we were traveling. So thanks for your patience. And No worries. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're a seasoned world traveler yourself. So maybe for anyone, including ourselves, who doesn't know too much about you, can you maybe give a little background on why you reached out and, and what you're doing here? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm, I identify as solo poly. I know you get a lot of couples on here because I've been listening for a long time. Um, but I'm solo poly and I, um, kind of relationship anarchy. Um, those are kind of like the labels that I use, I guess. Um, yeah, I work in like my day job, if you like, cause I, I organize emergency response programs for natural disasters. So I travel around quite a lot, which means that I have a very, eclectic dating background which I think is interesting and recently um, I was given a new label by a friend of mine which I had not heard before it probably formed on the subreddit somewhere um, which was a pollinator ah uh, yeah and, which, um, which is for anybody who doesn't know how, how do you define pollinator uh, I think I would define it as somebody who regularly comes in contact with 
others um, forms a relationship which might be sexually intimate or not. Um, and in that dynamic, you are the first experience that person has had of anything outside the mononormative culture. So I, I got given that by a friend, not someone I was like dating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't know, it just kind of stuck with me and I thought it was very interesting. So I'm now writing a research paper on that and started a podcast off the back of that. And I think it's it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see where it goes in my research, but... I don't know if you guys have had a pollinator on before, so I thought I would reach out and say hi. Hello. Well, yeah. I don't know that we've had one who uh, identifies who identifies as it, but I think it's it's finally fun to have one. So, well, did you want to real quick? Did you want to plug the name of your your podcast in the, um, or do you want to wait on that for now, or is it um, is it up and running at the moment? It's we have the three taste episodes out. And then we are working on, we finished like the full part one. We are basically what the pod, let's plug it now. <laughs> so it's Polly Pages podcast. And we, what I do is I collect other academics who are non-monogamous and we read the kind of core texts that polyamorous and non-monogamous people kind of are assumed to have read. So like I've been polyamorous my entire life and I've never read these texts so I was interested to finally kind of read them and see if they were I mean I've been telling people there's this book if you want to read it for so long but I actually haven't sat down and read it mm-hmm. so now we do a, a week by week like close reading um, of at the moment it's the ethical slot um, and then we have like obviously a whole canon of literature that people can use to get familiar with non-monogamy so I'm kind of just trying to bring some of the academics to the table. We have some bonus episodes in the works where we, we read actual academic articles. So it's a little bit more um, super scientific. But generally, we like to keep it pretty light. And it's just kind of me and my partners and friends like talking about what we think about what these people have already written. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, a book club. Not, yeah, not- yeah. yeah, it is. It's kind of like a book club with um, extra resources in it. So the other thing is, like, these books get published, and then within a year, there's new resources out. Yep. So it's nice to read through them and, you know, say, like, oh, well, this podcast talks about this, and this article has actually addressed this, and if you want to know more about this, go here. So we try and keep it, like, fresh. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Well, we'll, no, make sure to awesome. put, we'll make sure to put links for that in there. Yeah, so... Taking, I guess, a step back, uh, you said you've been polyamorous your whole life. When did you first know that, and how did you discover that about yourself? And and also, do you mind giving people just a little bit of an idea of who they're listening to? I mean, yes. we can see you. We have a bit of an idea, but uh, for anyone who can't see you, which is everyone. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's being a podcast. Um, well, I'm 29. I'm female. I use she, her pronouns. Um, Outside of the work and the poly stuff, I do. I'm a rescue scuba diver, and I spend a lot of time learning new languages. To be honest with you, the pertinent stuff that I do all tends to come back to like my work. So, like, run another podcast, which is about work, but we don't have to plug that because it's not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, as I said, like, I've been polyamorous for like. Well, I used to think I started practicing polyamory when I started working in this sector because it's a sector that has a lot of instability and a lot of distance, but also tends to attract people that I think probably have the soft skills that makes non-monogamy in, in, uh, not easy, but like a more likely relationship dynamic to occur. Um, but then I was listening to your episode with Tristan in it, and she spoke about her origin story. Mm-hmm. And so I kept going like back and back and back. And I was like, oh, no, this has always been there. I just didn't have a language for it until I kind of started operating with multiple partners over, like, in a more formal way. Like, even before I had, like, any idea what sex was, I was imagining, like, multiple partners could, like, I don't know, come to dinner or, like, it would not be strange if there was several people around me to, like, give me comfort. Um, And I think even... From a young age, I was never worried about making that a potential option in my relationships. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I was 16, it was my first boyfriend, and he was... But my first person I was dating that had a penis. Mm-hmm. So he'd be as inclusive as possible. <laughs> um, 
and the inevitable discussion of like sex came up and I had had sex before with people with a vulva but I hadn't had sex with anyone with a penis and I said like well I don't really want to do that and I was 16 so it's quite young here at least Mm -hmm. um and he was like well I you know if I don't have sex I think I think I might cheat on you which I now realize is a really horrible thing to say and obviously if you're listening to this and you're that young and someone says that then just dump him but my immediate response was like well I think if that's something you want to do then you should just go and do it and now I think about that's kind of like a strange response and maybe even back then I was thinking like if this is something you want and need to do with somebody else then just go and do it with someone else like why is this even a discussion mm-hmm. so you had you had had sex with essentially an, another woman but and then you were dating a guy and decided that you didn't want to include the sex into that relationship and for you it was totally fine to just say okay well if for me, go ahead and find that if that's what you need to go find. Essentially. I mean, he didn't because I imagine this was not the reaction he was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> he just sort of sheepishly was like, oh, okay, then I guess I'll wait. But, um, you know, it was, it was it, for me, I don't think it was even like a, a particularly emotional moment. I was like, cool, you should do that. That sounds mm-hmm. fun for you. Like, I don't have an interest in it, so you should do that. Right. Uh, so how how do you identify at this point? Just out of curiosity. Um, pansexual. Okay. Kind of I date as I said I have a very eclectic dating history, in terms of cultural backgrounds as well as gendered backgrounds. Um, I know some people use bisexual, but for me I don't like anything that. I mean it's completely okay somebody wants to identify as bisexual really doesn't matter I think it's just semantics at that point but for me it still has a connotation with like a bi-gendered focus Mm -hmm. which I don't feel comfortable with given my dating history so I usually Mm -hmm. use pansexual and I'm very like open about that yeah okay awesome that's fascinating so I guess so you've, you've known this from an early age have you or I guess even though you didn't have the words for it, how did you find the words for it? And how did you realize, when did you realize, I guess, that, oh, this is a lifestyle and or this is, and this is a way people identify? How did you discover that? Um, well, I think it's, so when I, I'm now really literate on, like, all the literature, the body of, like, texts that are there, the the sort of poly community but I don't like that's definitely a recent thing only since I've been engaged in it in like a academic sense so I think I basically just kind of started doing the thing that made most sense to me at the time so as I said I started working very internationally and it just became more and more difficult to conceive of a relationship that would be able to um, withstand the kind of challenges and the the impacts that you come across in this field like mm-hmm. this line of work and I was constantly surrounded by people who weren't monogamous it was just assumed that at some point you've had a discussion with your partner because you're going to go to like a war zone for six weeks and have no contact with them there's probably been a discussion about what that would mean for your relationship and I at least I just began to assume that that was a normal discussion that you could and should have with your partner mm-hmm. so it just it came about in a very natural way. But then I realized that there was this body of literature there. And even though when I'm reading it, I feel like it's a bit um, homogenous, mm-hmm. it can still be very helpful to have some of that language. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, it makes me curious. So you, it almost seems like your line of work, it, it really fit with sort of what you discovered about yourself back at age 16. And then it was sort of, you sort of you found yourself in a situation over and over again where it seems like the people in that field were sort of almost non-monogamous out of necessity in a in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that's not to paint everybody in the international humanitarian field as <laughs> polyamorous or relationship anarchist, but <laughs> I, I can imagine it, it does happen. I mean, almost as maybe out of a coping mechanism and out of a, you're in these situations and you're bonding together. And well, they're I, not easy situations. Exactly. Exactly. I guess, I can, can you speak on that a little more about 
how you sort of the realizations that kind of started to happen as you started to see this happening more and more. Yeah, I mean, I definitely can't speak for everyone, and no one would want me to. We're all very opinionated. I'm yeah. sure that we're like that. <laughs> um, but it's it's so. What happened for me was that this, like, starting this career was kind of a turning point for everything. It meant that I no longer needed even to like own more than a bag's worth of clothing. Like, it it really was like a turning point. Now I look back on so many things. When I actually started in the field, I was in a, a monogamous relationship. And within about three months, we realized, like, this is a huge dynamic change for us. And we had a very, like, productive conversation, which in the end we decided to dissolve the relationship. It was super amicable. Um, but after that, I was like, I'm going to put this, like, out there every time. Like, I'm coming to stay there for, you know, let's go to, go to, like, a country for, like, six months. I'm not going to promise to stay there afterwards. No one's going to expect me to stay there afterwards. And the people around me, like, tend to be incredibly emotionally literate people mm-hmm. who can understand compartmentalization incredibly well. Like, that is, I would say, like, a necessity for the for the field that I work in. It's just it can be incredibly emotionally difficult if you're not like that. So mm-hmm. I end up being around people that are like, oh, cool, like, you can do that. It's not unusual. It's not strange. So you have, like, the soft skills, as I said, that are, like, made it, more of an option mm-hmm. and at the same time I had decided that this was something that I wanted to prioritize for myself and like had in my mind where I want to be and that's not necessarily linked with somebody else so yeah mm-hmm. and so so like moving forward and, and where you are today do you you don't really have like a primary partner where you see like I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person and there may be other people who come and go, I think, right, so that's, that's one type of polyamory that we've, you know, we've interviewed people who do that. They have their primary partner, and then they'll have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and then they kind of always have this one constant in their life, but that's not really how, how you approach it. No, I mean, there's definitely, like, so much value in having, like, consistent relationships and, like, long-term relationships, and I do manage to cultivate them. Because I think there's something really, like, specific that you can only really get to if you're with someone for a long time, like meeting the parents or like, sharing space and stuff like that. It's not going to happen right off the bat. It would be kind of strange, I think, if it happened right off the bat. Nothing yeah. wrong with it if it does, right. but that's never been my experience. So what tends to happen is if I'm in a country for more than, like, a few months or something, I'll end up having relationships while I'm there. And then usually that kind of becomes one relationship because the person is uncomfortable or making a, a transition towards seeing things from my perspective. That's like the pollination, if you like, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if it ends up taking on legs, I'm not just going to abandon the whole polycule that I formed. Sure. So over the years, what's ended up happening is I have like just naturally discovered, like I have like a little polycule here and a little polycule here and they're very geographically separated but that's quite nice as long as like i can have nesting partners that are I've, I've managed to maintain like over long distance and obviously so much that relies on the people that i'm dating and the way that we get to the point whether like whether they can go like yeah i want to do this or no this isn't for me it's too much of a a change from what i'm used to so at the moment it feels very much like i have these great nesting partners that are like, or almost nesting partners. I don't particularly like that phrase, but I can't think of anything more <laughs> better because it really is like I fly in there and like I'm there and I go somewhere else and I'm there. And that feels really nice because it does feel like I'm getting, um, getting the support I need mm-hmm. to, to do that. I think at this point I'm working more towards having a, a slightly more stabilized regime. So I'm not necessarily so, so global all the time and I've been speaking to my partners about what that transition would look like mm-hmm. like three three I would say three <laughs> that like I've had that discussion with and like mm-hmm. seriously thought about where that would lead and right. we're in that phase now I suppose mm-hmm. yeah I think that's really fascinating like to to think about that like when you show up in certain cities around the world that you sort of have like you're almost like a little family there and then you go and you have a little family here and I think I, don't know, I think that's really 
Oh, yeah. That's fascinating. It's amazing, yeah. And, and it allows you to have connections and familiarity while traveling, too, because that's something that, it, that we're very familiar with, I guess, is that as you get, as you're traveling, it can be very isolating, even though you're meeting people along the way and, um, it's, it's not always easy. So having somebody that's familiar that you, when you get that place, you know that, and it's comforting. Right. Yeah. And also it's, it's quite nice to have an insight into you, like that person's life in a very deep way. Mm-hmm. Um, which, as I said, I think that that gets missed if, if you're, if you're uh, rapidly changing partners, I think that can be lost someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and also these partners come from vastly different backgrounds. So it's like the cross-cultural relationships that I've had, I find are always super valuable for both mm-hmm. both and all of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously it does make the communication of such a strange, uh, quote-unquote strange yeah. idea yeah. as polyamory can make that a little bit difficult, but yeah. I've always managed to find a, a script that works. Because are you, or have you had those conversations in languages other than your native language, which is, your native language is English, correct? Yeah. 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 Which yeah, I, I would imagine be hard. It would be hard. Yeah, so hard because a lot of the literal language, like the literal words, <laughs> like compersion, for example, mm-hmm. it's such a, I mean, it's, it's such a new word. Yeah. It does not translate necessarily into, um, you know, Bantu or Swahili or something. Right. Um, so you're more you're more describing concepts and trying to use a familiar familiar set of rules and scenarios that would be best for that person to understand what I want and need, and also for that person to then describe to me, like, oh, I don't want that. Right. Um, like I was in I was stationed in Madagascar for a while. And I was not very good at French at the time. And I was speaking to dating a Malagasy man. So I was learning Malagasy and he was trying, he didn't speak French very well. So we were both kind of just using like a language that neither of us really knew. And eventually we got to a point where I could kind of speak the language well enough to have, he wouldn't have to use his French anymore because it was so bad. And I remember a friend of mine was like, how are you having conversations of any like important topic when you're are so fresh to the language and I thought that was really interesting and when I thought about it it was like actually this means this means I really have to strip out a lot Mm -hmm. like I just have to say like this makes me sad right there we go that's the beginning of the discussion right well this makes me happy um and it really like it was it was a really interesting experience to have those discussions that would usually I think be incredibly emotional in a language that was so new to me that I couldn't Expressed my emotion. I only yeah. expressed what I wanted and needed right. because it's literally the verb that I knew. Right. <laughs> I think too, and, and and I'm I'm fascinated by that and curious about it. Where you're able to, so so there's many many people who can't even fathom having multiple relationships in their own native language. Like so, to think about a whole bunch of English speakers trying to navigate polyamory is is not an easy thing to do and now you're doing it in multiple languages and also not even navigating the polyamory side but you're also developing a relationship with somebody without even necessarily speaking the same language and i think i think that's sort of a mind-blowing thing for someone to imagine as well as like like you said you were you were dating this guy and developing deeper and deeper feelings when you could barely even communicate with each other verbally and yeah I guess. It's also, though, the quickest way of learning a language is, it is. to flirt with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, by the end of the time I was in Madagascar, I was, like, practically fluent. So, like, that was fine. But it was, it's definitely, like, I could be really cheesy and be, like, the only language you need is love. But that's not true. Like, you need to be able to, like, talk about boundaries and sexual health and family and whatever is important in the context that I'm working in. So, yeah. And I guess, can you talk a little bit about how you managed to do that as you were picking up the language before you necessarily had those those verbal skills, like how you were able to navigate those things? Probably body language. I mean, it's like 50% of probably more than even what we're saying sure. to people that are yeah. like speaking the same language. I mean, um, often there's been some kind of like 
like their second language might be my second language or something, which okay. has smoothed some of the edges. So I end up often mixing my languages together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weirdly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that's actually more probably because I just haven't got a firm enough grip on anything to be completely fluent. So I'm like, ah, oh, throw in a French word, it'd be fine. I right. don't know. Um, but yeah, I think body language is important, but obviously these are things that require you to sit down and like be super patient about. I mean, like these are not quick conversations that you can have, like, yeah. I don't know, on the ride home from Burning Man or whatever, right? Like this is right. like, I'm, I'm having to come to the table and like, we might even need to have someone else there because of like the cultural, because of. I don't know, a language barrier, which would be helped by having your friend there, but then do you want to have your friend there? And <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, I think you'd also just touched on something that I was, that I was curious about too, which is I imagine you've come up against places where what your relationship style is not culturally accepted. And is that something you've had to navigate around and, and how have you done that? Well, you're, yeah, you're also a foreigner coming into these places, too, that can sometimes be, you can be judged for not being from locally. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on, like, it's massively difficult. Um, you could have a whole whole podcast just on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, essentially, when you're a guest in, like, another country, and you're an expatriate, and you're there to, I mean, I'm there to work, right? I'm not there to, like enjoy the beach and like right. meet fun people right that's just something that i know that i need in order to do the work that i do there are plenty of expats that that also like are completely like celibate or like abstain completely from any kind of intimate relationships there are plenty of expats who will explicitly say like i don't want to date cross-culturally and there is there are other ways that you can navigate this it's just that i know that my time will be more rewarding and i will actually be a better like balanced person and that my work be better if I am, I mean, also my language will be better, I guess, right. as well, yeah. if I am having this relationship. So I'm not saying this is like, you know, uh, something that everyone does in my field. Um, but I have come up across, I have come across some, some places where it would be incredibly taboo to have more than one partner. That happens quite a lot. But even, even then, as you say, like, I'm, I'm a foreigner. So actually, it's like the, I sometimes get more leeway. Yeah. Like, oh, she doesn't know how we do things here. Like, she doesn't have to come to church and the family bride. Like, it's fine. Yeah. She's different. And I think it would be really stupid to, like, imagine that doesn't make a difference when it clearly does. Um, usually, if I'm, ha- like, just, like, practically, if I'm coming up across to somebody and we're beginning to date and we're beginning to form an interest in each other, I will be pretty upfront about it. And then we can talk about how we want to manage that. So mm-hmm. if it's safe for me to do so, it'll be upfront about it. And then that person can either buy in and then we can have a chat. Okay, so how how do we need to do this in your village versus how we need to do it in the capital versus what do we do when I'm not there? Mm-hmm. And I think usually that's that conversation makes them feel like they're on board because they are. But also I will pretty much take what they say as golden. Like if they're saying, no, you need to be monogamous with me in the country then that's our starting point because they know the culture better than me they know what's safe mm-hmm. that's usually what, i mean i've also been in those places where people have had kind of like less issues with it than i would yeah. have expected so madagascar was one where it was like yeah right like i don't see anything wrong with that it was like it didn't need to be as difficult as i, as I thought it was going to be right mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's something too that maybe is misconstrued uh a little bit is that you know, all of these other countries are, are much more uptight about stuff like that. And I think that's something we've been learning a little bit about uh, some books we've been reading where they were talking about some different locations in Africa where they're very nomadic and, like, the the men will take turns going off for weeks at a time to, to hunt or to to live in, like, the uh, with the animals and do animal husbandry. And it's sort of just known that while they're gone, everybody, life goes on at home and they just kind of, it's just a very natural thing. They don't have to name it. They just, that's just how they live it. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's fascinating to hear someone who's coming into it from the outside and almost 
participating in it in a sense not that you were at that specific location i wasn't trying to imply that but. <laughs> i'm out there with the animal husbandry right. <laughs> yeah. um no i mean i think it's like really interesting that like now that i am reading literature i'm like there seems to be just like this huge gap like it just seems to be about like americans that are white and have a certain amount of privilege like overwhelmingly, which is strange to me as someone that is coming into literature like quite late, having already done it, but also someone that's not from America, because I would have thought that the worst place to try and do this is like Bible Belt America. But obviously, I've been listening to your episodes, and I know those people who are poly, and they live in the Bible Belt. I'm like, that must be so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, and then they'll be like, well, you know, you're doing it in Tanzania. How are you doing that? And I'm like, it didn't seem that hard, actually. <laughs> and I think it is just that, like, it's, uh, as I said, like, the body of literature and the community tends to be so homogenous. It has the same flags that everyone can kind of grasp and be like, oh, okay, you went to a singing party or, you know, you, you sat down and spoke with a counsellor or mm-hmm. you went to Burning Man or, like, these flags that are in that body of literature to help people navigate it. But I've been doing fine without it. Right. <laughs> And clearly there's, like, a whole bunch of other people that, you know, even, like, even in the black and poly community, it's very specifically about Americans, mm-hmm. very specifically black Americans, because so much about, I mean, you guys did a great episode on it with Crystal, mm-hmm. so I don't need to reiterate it. But it's, like, there's this, there is a lot more, um, like, cultural scripts that can work. It's just finding the one that's culturally appropriate and, like, context-specific, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you almost feel like you were doing it just fine without having to dig into all the literature and you almost feel like, like, why, why did I, why did I bother trying to learn all of the things that other people are saying about it when I was, I seemed to be doing it just fine and I was doing it my own way. <laughs> no, 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 not entirely. I think that this, it's kind of been quite timely because as I said, I'm trying to uh, move in, move my career into like a more of a stabilized place and also my life. So now that I'm having discussions with partners about nesting and also as I, so there's that element like for myself now there is like tools and stuff that I was like, Oh, I can now use these because I'm having conversations differently anyway. But also, as I said, like I pollinate people all the time. Now I can just be like, Oh, I know that this is good. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I know how this this has been explained previously. I know how to, like, deconstruct the difference between monogamy and non-monogamy and be like, well, you have a friend that you spend all your time with. Isn't that kind of like a relationship? I'm like, oh, that's really helpful. There are elements of it that, are, like, that I'm not really using. Like, for example, a lot of the literature puts polyamorous as sort of part of the queer umbrella. I've never come across that really until pretty recently that there's never been a case of like well you're bi-curious maybe we should try this or that because it's just not something that'd be even less likely to happen mm-hmm. in some cultures i think that I've, that I've been dating in so so some of it's been super helpful some of it's just reinforced what i already knew and some of it yeah i don't use but it's super interesting yeah so, yeah. yeah where do you see yourself um moving in the future do you see staying in a similar type relationship style i know you said that you're moving trying to move toward a more stable um like i guess but that's work-wise right work-wise but do you see your relationship styles shifting at all i think so um i so the, i mean the kind of downside of my work is that it involves a lot of personal trauma so there's been a couple instances of like accidents and instances in the field and that's kind of prompted me to be like actually i'd like to have a bit more of a stable everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm having discussions with um, probably like two partners. I mean, I'm still dating both, like all people individually are like still dating. So, I mean, it started out with more partners. I was having this discussion with, but as you start having this discussion, you realize like, okay, that's not where you're at. That's fine. We'll just keep dating or we'll just be, we'll just transition this into a friendship place or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'd say there's like a couple of partners that I'm speaking to when actively looking at relocation, you know, expenses and places, mm-hmm. um, all of, both of which weren't poly before they met me. <laughs> In fact, 
by poly polyating thing. <laughs> I'm clearly not that bad at it. <laughs> um, and they're both they're both now sort of operating their own little like polycules and their own way of doing things, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, don't want to like infringe on that. And obviously, anything that I want to do in terms of, uh, I don't want to say escalating because I don't like the relationship escalator, but kind of escalating. I guess, towards a more traditionally stable place. Mm-hmm. All of that relies on them as well. So mm-hmm. I can only really say what I'm going to do, and that's I'm going to make my career in a more, like, safe and secure location. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully my relationships will fall in line, but if not, then I'll make new relationships, and they'll be great, and it'll be fun. Yeah, I, I think, I think like, overall, I feel like the, the theme is, like, just how flexible you are about it all, and I think... I think that's really admirable that it's like you, if you go to a new location, you can make something happen there or not. And when you come back, it either continues or it doesn't. And you just, you let it be what it is. And I think, I think that's something that's really hard for people to just allow things to be what they are. Well, I think it takes, you're obviously a very self-confident person and, and really, um, you know, work through what you want for your life and, a lot of people struggle with that too, I think. So it's hard to, for people to wrap their minds around it. Yeah. And also I think being um, fluid with like the relationships is super difficult. So like, you know, as I said, like I have had some conversations about this with, with partners and then it's, we, we've had to basically be like, they've been like, Oh, that's not what I want. And I've been like, okay, no worries. And transition, like transitioned that out of, one space and into another space and redefine things. Mm-hmm. I think that that's that's a skill that we don't get to practice very often unless you're doing it like really hyper regularly with like friends, coworkers, partners, and that's basically what I do because I have to renegotiate even just like colleagues to boss back to consultant entirely non-sexual obviously. So I think it's that skill is is what's enabling me to do that and it's a really hard one to practice essentially i think that's the only reason why it was working out for me so well <laughs> i can just uh i don't know i don't want to like kind of toot my own horn but i am pretty good at doing that so. <laughs> and sort of compar- compartmentalizing the different the different aspects yeah definitely and then you know making sure that other people are kind of on board with whether they're going to end up in that in that movement and understand it. And obviously like not every, not every decoupling as it were goes well, but most of them have been um, like, I don't think there's many I can say like we never speak anymore. And it's was a waste of my time. Like I just would never, would never think, I would hope that would never be an outcome of any decoupling for anyone. Right. Right. Yeah. Have you found anything in your, experience that has helped make those decoupling transitions smoother trying to prevent the catastrophic blow up at the end of a relationship like things that you found you can do to help make that transition smoother and not cause you know uh, ill will towards each other yeah um that's a really good question i think people respond very well to being like shame free so if there's no if there's no um outcome that feels like hugely like it's going to reflect badly on them then people tend to be better at voicing what they want i mean i guess it's the same if you're speaking about like uh like a sexual act right if you make it shame free then you make it so that your partner can ask whatever they want mm-hmm. so and then they will and then you can say yes or no mm-hmm. right it's obviously not always that simple, but like in an ideal way. When you think about decoupling, I guess it's kind of the same. Like, there's no, we're, we've already deconstructed the idea that if this breaks off, like it's like a divorce or something. It's very formal because they don't have those kinds of formalized structures in place. And also, a lot of the time, there is already the assumption that I will leave physically. So, between those two things, making sure the person feels that they can say what they want to say and me inevitably physically leaving a place for at least some period of time. I think that makes it really a lot easier on on all parties. Right. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Well, I was was curious, yeah, are you 
Are you out to family and friends? I mean, we see the dog on the couch, so presumably he knows that you're polyamorous. But <laughs> other than that, are, are you out in your life to people? Uh, yes, I'm fully out. Um, obviously, when I, I'm going into a new mission, there's a period of time where I am low-key. Like, I'm not, I'm not even out socializing. I'm just observing. A good briefing should always include things like personal relationship, protocol, that's both allowed by HR and also suggested for the environment. So they'll, they should tell me whether it would be like super bad for me to come out queer, for example. Mm-hmm. And I'll like tailor what I'm doing to that. But in like the stable aspects of my life, I'm out to my family, all my friends. The podcast uses my real name. I publish under my real name. I've met my partner's families as one of several potential partners. Um, I'm not saying everyone gets it. Obviously, there are people that don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, but besides, be... besides not necessarily getting it, has it been fairly positive? I mean, you haven't had any major pushback? No, I've been really lucky. Like, my my family, for example, they, I mean, they knew that I was queer. And I think this is just, like, an addition to them. Mm-hmm. They knew that I was pansexual because they'd met they'd met female and trans people that I was dating. So they knew that. And then it's just like, oh, but also I'm going to be dating multiple people and you are going to be meeting multiple people. Um, and even if you're not meeting them, you still have to contact them in case I get injured in the field, for example. So they have literally like a formalized list of the people that would need to be contacted in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, any, any negativity has just been like, oh, I don't understand this, and just kind of like battered it away. There needs to be no follow-up. There's no, there's no, um, there hasn't been any issues at all like that. And my friends, some of them have pollinated as well. I mean, they're just um, not, not loads of them, but definitely some of them have been like, that's actually really interesting. I want to, to explore that and have gone off and done like made their own polycules and began to actively be poly as mm-hmm. well. I think like probably some of the partners, uh, families may have struggled with it, but again, that's, that's also could be partially like a cultural thing in some situations, but also kind of like not my problem that much because it's not my family. Like I'm dating a person. Mm-hmm. It's kind of their responsibility. I see it to make sure that, we're out at a level that they're comfortable with, with their family. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do realize that that is a huge privilege. Like there have been places where it, that would just, that's been like a minor miracle that has been like that. Um, mm-hmm. And there has had to be some relationships that I've had, unfortunately, which have had to be completely secret because even though I'm out, that doesn't mean that it's safe for the other person to be out. Right. Yeah, that's definitely something you have to navigate, especially dating cross-culturally. Yeah, I mean, this is some, sometimes the cultures where it's, if it was to come out, it wouldn't just be putting me and her at risk. It would also be like, you know, her sister would become divorced and, like, her father would lose their job. And, like, there would be huge ramifications mm-hmm. that I can't even conceive of. But you have to be really mindful about it and what you're doing. Because of the polyamory or just because they were dating or in a relationship with with a, a foreigner? Uh, no, with the, that's only been with the queer situation. Okay, okay, um, uh, I got gotcha. you. Weird, weirdly, it's like the poly stuff doesn't seem to be as um, potentially damaging to anyone as the, the queer stuff has been. So all my queer relationships overseas have been super low-key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's literally Uh, illegal. uh, Right, out of necessity. Right. Yeah. I was curious, how have you handled safety, uh, I guess sexual health? uh, And and physical safety, physical safety. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) while you're dating and traveling. The issue with sexual health I've come across is that it's perceived, like, very differently everywhere I am. And to have an actual conversation about safe sex, there needs to be, I think, three things. There needs to be a level of trust, because it's always going to come down to a level of trust, even if you're in a monogamous relationship, right? And even mm-hmm. if you're you're married or whatever, right? Yeah. It's always going to come down to a level of trust. 
there's also going to be a level of like egalitarian honesty, like the assumption that you can sit down with your partner and talk to them on a level. And there has to be an access to whatever contraception or sexual health that you're going to be using. And the reality is like those three things are like, there are certain socio and economic like weight behind those things. Like not everyone has access to contraception and definitely not everyone has access to contraceptive education. Mm-hmm. So often I'm having to fall some, sometimes into the position of like also educating my partner about things like condoms and STIs and physically going to get tested with them. Um, in my ideal world, that's what I would do. I would like test with my partner physically being there with them, make sure they understand everything three months later, test again, and then begin to negotiate a difference in, in contraceptive use. Um, but that's just real, like realistically, that's, that's a huge, uh, it's a huge activity to like engage with someone on that, mm-hmm. on that topic. It's much easier, I think, to just be like, either we're not going to be having sexual relations or you're going to be using this and I get to decide that. Um, and I obviously, I get tested like super, super regularly. I get tested like every three months and I'm like very upfront about it with my partners. So that would be like the foundation for everyone that I'm dating. Once I'm with a partner and they are like long-term, so the partners that I've been speaking to about becoming a bit more serious, uh, I don't like using that word serious, but <laughs> <laughs> becoming a bit more um, traditionally escalated. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then the partners that, I, that I'm that having maybe like longer-term goals with, shared assets, shared plans, um, we've kind of moved out of, I guess the conventional dating stage and into like a, are you going to be my nesting partner? Question mark stage. Mm-hmm. Then it's a case of like negotiating out barriers completely. Mm-hmm. Fun without, as we all know, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, and they just have to make sure that they're also getting tested regularly and that they are only really using condoms with me. It's like a, like a very soft fluid bonding at that point. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. And it's, I think it's one of the first times we've really had the opportunity to talk to somebody who's who's had to navigate this cross-culturally, culturally, you and know, languages, and language-wise, and just so many aspects that it makes you know the uh, heteronormative poly navigation in like the U.S. seem pretty mundane. So. Yeah, I mean, when I, I mean, I have been dating a little bit in the U.S. just like literally in, within the last year, and it was like this person is not even like questioning whether they should get out a condom, and like they have their like on their phone they have their test results, and I'm just like, this is amazing. Is this how the rest of the world is all the time? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am, like struggling to explain some some things to people that just really don't want to have a conversation like it just feels super uncomfortable and like it feels a bit like forced but there's also been great relationships I've had that have had absolutely no sexual contact so I don't think about this like um centering of sexual relationships is not the key thing for my polyamory I've had had a long term serious relationship I mean serious relationships let's say within that culture it would have been seen as very serious but obviously I'm not with them anymore for example, but like that wouldn't have involved any sexual contact. That you wouldn't be able to do that. Right, right. Yeah, no, and it's fascinating, like you said too, that it's it, and it's maybe not that the people in these other cultures or other countries don't want to do that. It's that they may not even know about it, right? They don't. It's not even a thing that happens in their in their community or their village or wherever they are. It's just it's a totally foreign concept, and so. I, Having approached that concept mm-hmm. is... Condoms are, are pretty ubiquitous everywhere I've been. Sure, sure. Um, but things like um, getting, like, for example, syphilis is very widespread in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever had a conversation about syphilis in the UK. So, like, obviously, every, I can get a HIV test for, like, literally no money at all in Malawi. But, like, it would cost me literally hundreds of dollars in the States. Mm-hmm. So it's not always that the, the, the like the places that I've been stationed that might be considered to have less access actually do. Right. Right. I think more often than not, it's, it's 
the, the access to the, like the ways to have those conversations might be missing or like the specific method of contraception that I want to talk about might be missing. Like, I mean, basically I'm coming into a relationship and being like, I need to describe this thing to you. And in some cultures it's going to work and in some cultures it's going to be more difficult, but it's a conversation we need to have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. No, it is. And I think it's really helpful for other people to hear too. So I yeah. have, I have a question on uh-huh. the, on the lighter side of things. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's a heavy conversation. Because, so so we, we've just come off of roughly a year of traveling, and we know the, the hilarity of mistakes that we can make just in communication, oh, talking with people. I imagine that maybe gets taken to a new level when you start introducing relationships and sex and all these different things. And I guess, is there a, a standout maybe blooper that was sort of like something that happened that you're like, only while I'm here doing this thing that I'm doing, like just, I don't know. I know we've had enough on our own that didn't involve <laughs> sex or relationships while traveling. That I just, Can you think of one? I can think of one almost every day. <laughs> Where did yours happen? Where did your blooper happen? Oh, geez. Tra- traveling bloopers? I mean, not translating signs properly. Yeah, the the big not understanding stuff. traffic patterns. A lot of involved, so, yeah. So many navigating things. traffic and uh, signs and in other languages. Yeah. Um. Oh, hammock. Oh yeah, we were trying to find a hammock. No. We no, we were trying to find basil. <laughs> we were trying to find basil. And the Spanish word for basil is albahaca or albaca. Albaca. And it sounds very similar to hamaca, which is hammock. We went on this whole like goose chase for uh, what we thought was basil, and it turned out that they were really telling us how to find hammocks. Um, it was like it was pretty funny. Did you did you buy a hammock? Not not, not that, that time. time. <laughs> <laughs> so you did leave with a hammock. That's the important thing. We did. We did. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like one that's similarly like hotbed of the farm. Okay, this is a good one. So in in um, Malawi. It would be very strange for, like, women drive and everything. But, like, I just think it's, like, a bit unusual for the woman to drive when there's a man in the car, especially the man's Malawian. So, like, sometimes I go and pick up my friends or a partner, and, like, I would just naturally get out of the car and, like, get into the car, and, like, he would drive wherever we're going. And, like, it's kind of small. We're a long ways the capital of Malawi, and it's pretty small. And, like, we would kind of end up going to, like, the same hood, like, a lot of the time. And then later, a completely different situation I was in, I was on foot in the market, and I met someone who I would see regularly when we were out driving. And he was like, oh, like, where's your driver? And I was like, no, that's my my partner. And he was like, oh, you can drive? I was like, yeah. And he like genuinely just like, it was like a weird exchange. I was like, wow, you really just only have this one <laughs> view of me. And then it was like, that's your car? <laughs> Like, it just became more and more amazing to him that it was, like, I just thought, oh, I completely, like, misunderstood this situation. Um, that's not that funny, but, like, I hope we can... No, so, so, they, so they, thought, they thought your partner was your professional, your, like, hired driver? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also thought that, like, it wasn't my car. Like, it was, like, a, his company car or something. Like, that was the natural <laughs> thing. <laughs> And then he was like, and you can drive? Oh, my God, this is just getting more and more crazy. Like, I just, yeah. Like, yeah, fun. I can. <laughs> it just really made me realize, like, like you know, how, how much do we really know about the people we're seeing most days? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and just seeing the world through someone else who grows up in a completely different culture and different language, and it's so vastly different. Um, or it can be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is there is there anything we haven't touched on that you were hoping to to get out into the world on our podcast versus your podcast? Um, I think just that, like, so I, as I said, like after my friend kind of pointed out that how many of my relationships I have with monogamous people and then end up leaving them and they're not monogamous anymore, um, I made a full list of everyone. Um, and wrote in their demographics and their age. And I'm now using that as, like, the basis of a data set. And I, well, the, the title is something like uh, 
how statement of polyamorous intent and identity influences early stage relationship forming. But the issue is that my data set is like so ridiculously diverse that I'm having trouble pulling anything out of it. <laughs> like the only thing I can pull out at the moment with any shred of like dignity is that there is like an age bracket that seems to be more likely to uh, be exposed to polyamory and then take it from there into their own life. So I, yeah, I think the only other thing I really want to like talk about is that that is super interesting research because I think it'd be very helpful to have a, a more diverse idea of how to have that discussion. I mean, a lot of the literature that's about opening a relationship presumes a pre-existing dyad, which is probably heterosexual, maybe gay men, and they are discussing on equal footings with like all of the all of the economic power that that couple has to expand their relationship. And I think what might be missing from that is like, how do you, if you're solo poly, have that conversation in a way that is like safe, sane and respectful. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on that. And so far it's been very interesting and I'm now expanding my data set. And so it's just a self-published paper. You're just writing. It's not like through a university or anything. No, yeah, no, I have some, I don't want to jinx anything. I have some needs, but, um, it's something that I'm putting together off my own back for now. Yeah. Um, and as a lot of as a lot of the published research began as actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm like in the process of kind of writing uh, like a, a survey for other people and especially if people are interested in being key informant interviews would be very handy. So specifically looking for solo quality people, people that are living single but polyamorously. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is this would be really great. I would be really excited to do it. And I clearly can't pull from my own background because it's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you you're gonna send us the the link for the survey, correct? In a, in a way for yeah. people to contact you. So anyone who's listening and wants to help out in any way can can reach out to you. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah, and if they don't feel comfortable going through you guys, they can just follow you on Instagram. Probably it's not super formal yet. So yeah, well, we'll put we'll put the information in the show notes so they can go directly to you, and oh. they don't they don't have to talk to us at all. <laughs> 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 I was going to say though, I thought I think it's fascinating that your own data, the, the your data set that you've established within your own life life is so diverse that you can't really do the research off of it. Like, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> and and I think it's fascinating that it, it, I mean, I think it's a good sign, right? That it's, it's such a, a diverse crowd of people out there who are exploring this, that it's not like, Oh, it's all middle-class white people from the Midwest or something to that effect. It's, it's just, there's people all over the world doing this in all different ways. And I, yeah, I like that. I I mean, also, like, across the gender spectrum as well has been, like, I would love to, I mean, obviously all the demographics are interesting, but I have a sneaking suspicion that straight people are not the people that are probably solo the most. Right. Um, I, that's just, that's just a hunch, but that's my hunch. And I'm also thinking, um, so I'm disabled. Um, I'm deaf in, in one ear, not like heavily disabled or physically disabled, but disabled. And I would be interested in, like, seeing if there is like a subset of the community that's like hearing impaired or specifically hearing impaired for my own use but also it got me thinking like i don't think i've ever read a paper that was talking about the way that disability interacts with the polyamorous lifestyle i mean you'd think that it would be like like a positive interaction right because i think people that are polyamorous actively they tend to be talking a lot about like consent and boundaries and how to like physically make things happen. I mean, even if you just think about the logistics of like a threesome, I mean, like, you know, people tend to be like really committed to making sure that things get done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would hope that it'd be like a super positive interaction, but I've like yet to meet another disabled solo poly person. Well, let's see if we can change it. Yeah. Yeah. The call out. If you're interested in helping out, definitely yeah. reach out. And yeah, so I mean, unless there's something else major, Claire, maybe we 
we let you go. I know it's a little later on your end of the planet than ours. And yeah, it's nine fifteen. So we can we can let you Pop my bedtime. Right? <laughs> well, we'll let, we'll let you get to bed, and we will we will be in touch, and we'll get all the information up so people can contact you in the show notes. And we'll be in touch, and maybe we do it again. Yeah, well, and thank you so much for reaching out. I think that the whole point of our podcast, wanting to start this podcast, was to talk to a diverse range of people, and uh, that's, I feel like we got that from talking to you. Like, that's what we wanted, to get different perspectives that we just don't have the experience. So, thank you. And and it only happens when people do reach out. Right. So, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you guys so much for, like, getting to chat with me it was much fun yeah Yeah, absolutely well i have a hunch it won't be the last time so (laughs) i feel like you say that to every guest yeah but it's but we're we're starting to make it happen now we're on the Uh we're on the coming back around loop (laughs) so yeah keep me in your roster i think it'll be fun yes absolutely well have a wonderful evening and we'll talk soon okay thank you bye guys bye and we're back we are back Thank you to Claire for taking the time to talk with us mm-hmm. and for coming on the show and hopefully for coming on the show again in the future. Yeah, we had a really fun time talking to her. And since we actually travel a lot, too, we felt like we really could relate to some of what she talked about. So, At the top of the show, we mentioned there was some information from co-creation that needed to be shared. So really quick, we will share that time sense of information. We will let them tell you what they need to say. Yeah, right now. Awesome. Great. So thank you so much. My name is Co-Creation. That's K-O-E Creation. And you can find me online. My tag is at Co-Create. That's K-O-E-C-R-E-A-T-E. And at co-creation.com. My book is called This Heart Holds Many. It is available on Amazon for under $20. It has an ebook and a paperback. And if you are going to be in Portland, Atlanta, Austin or Albuquerque in the next month. I am going to all of those places. Um, I will also be seeing you fine folks at um, Atlanta Poly Weekend. So excited. I'll be teaching and doing signings there. So um, all this information can be found at cocreation.com and online. So thank you. And thank you. Yes. It and was like we, we had to break, but no one heard it. No one heard it. And their interview will be published later this summer. So be on the lookout for that, too. Yeah, it was an awesome interview. So thank you to them for that. And we, what do we got? Next, Next week, week, Donna and Alex. Two listeners reach out to us via email. Awesome they, people. Yeah, they're awesome. Their story is one of fun for the ages. Yes. I don't know. What do you say? You I don't want to give. I don't want to give away too much. You said the Florida joke last time. I know. We. This is the second time we recorded this intro outro because we had a goof up. Yeah. And we made some jokes about them moving. Basically, here's what happened. <laughs> he said in the interview they moved to Florida because they didn't like being cold. But when they moved there, they refused to move in to anywhere that was gated and had old people because they didn't want to seem like they were old. So. They're basically doing the retiree thing. They're still working, and they just don't want to be old, so they moved in with a whole bunch of young people, and, well, now, they're, they're, and now they're swinging. They got sick of winter, so they moved south. That was the basis. I'm they're sick still of winter, working. too. It's fucking June, and it's still winter. Why we have a fucking fire burning <laughs> it's because it's yeah. so cold. Damn it. All right. Enough, okay. enough of your negativity. Let's go. You need to be more positive. We'll see you in Atlanta or we will see you next week. Next week. Ciao. Bye everyone.